Welcome to the MyLifeInConcert.com podcast. I'm your host, Various Artists, and please join me as I travel back and revisit every live show I've seen from 1975 to the present. It's the first week of January, 1973. It's a Saturday morning and I'm home alone with my parents and sister both at work. I have recently turned 10 years old. This happened two weeks ago in mid-December 1972. I am thrilled to now be part of that double-digit age clique with that majestic one planted firmly in front of the stalwart zero in all its binary glory. The yellow brick road to Teenageville and then on to Adultia stretches out before me like gleaming candy. I'm excited to be starting my journey, one with a down-the-line jackpot of any manner of enticing Pandora's boxes filled with mature delights. Well, mature as envisioned by my still-naive yet overactive Grave 5 imagination, anyway. Outside on this January morning, large snowbanks blanket everything and everywhere, soundproofing and enveloping all in a silence while inside, the reassuring hiss of the comforting heat pouring through the vents of the register is the only sound to be heard. Eventually, that ambient hum is intercepted and overtaken as I turn on the radio of our family component set stereo system. I sit down in the rocking chair in my pajamas, housecoat, and slippers to enjoy my breakfast tea and toast with some music. We only have AM pop radio in London, Ontario at this time. And while I certainly listen to the radio, as evidenced here, I'm as evidenced here, I'm turning it on now. I have grown up with much of my tastes in the left field rock area. And that's via my older brother and sister uh, having great taste and bringing albums into the house as well as my future and then later sister-in-law and all of their friends. So... The radio, I mean, with the radio, I I love the R&B on the radio, and I'm a soul fan, and every Saturday afternoon, I'm watching Soul Train, and I love that on the radio, because that's something that otherwise isn't listened listened to in the house, so this is a place, and this is new for me, Um, but most of the, like, pop and quote-unquote rock on AM radio tends to be bland, formulaic, generic, conservative. Uh, It's too unadventurous for my tastes. So while I enjoy hearing many artists on the radio who I already like, like you would hear Elton John, Rod Stewart, the Rolling Stones, those are artists I already knew and liked. And so they have those. And there again, there's always one hit wonders on the radio. Um, like great one-off tunes, kind of pop tunes that I enjoy. So th- there's stuff I hear now and then on the radio, but I rarely hear a new artist for the first time ever on the radio who completely blows me away. As I said, that usually happens with the vinyl coming into the household and a lot of this stuff isn't on the radio or there's the whole album or but that's where my true musical epiphanies come from from records being brought into the house but something extraordinary happens on this january morning when i switch on the radio 
it's a musical revelation. And bizarrely, a similar revelation has just happened a week ago. Uh, again, this doesn't usually happen at all, and I've had two lightning bolts via the radio within a fortnight. Wow, the wonders of modern science. Now, the first song, again, I heard this about a week ago. So this is around Christmas time when I was hearing it. This is a couple of weeks back. Now, that first song that I started hearing around Christmas time just a few weeks ago, uh, it's this very dramatic story song. And it's about this astronaut who, you know, once he launches into space, decides to bid farewell to one and all, unplug, and leave everything behind, heading off into the uncharted, infinite unknown. And, of course, the thing that really hit me was he was also going to a certain death. And it has, had a, it has a very dramatic presentation and it really really catches my ear at this time every time it comes on i just i really i just i'm riveted and i also like the clever nod to stanley kubrick's 2001 a space odyssey which i'd just seen the year before and i like how the song is arranged into different sections there's also this great bit where there's two voices and the lead singer is singing and the other voice is doing a countdown I am fascinated by this story, and not least of which it's chilling denouement, and also fall in love with the sound of the singer's voice and the record's melodic appeal. Now, this new song that I'm hearing this morning is very, very different from that other song, but both of them are rev revelations. But very, very different song. This one, it's a very jazzy number featuring a to-die-for, looping, loping bass line, and a vocalist who really speaks more than sings. It's a combination of speaking and singing. And in the song, he's coolly delivering these vignettes about a series of fringe characters who have headed to New York City to get their freak on. Now, this vocalist, as I said, is kind of a speak-talking. He doesn't have a sweet voice like the singer in the other song or quite frankly, like any other vocalist I've ever heard on the radio. And there's just something about this song that I hear it this morning. It just pins me to the wall. His nuanced, stylized recitation and the vague sense of exciting forbiddenness that permeates the record, sucking me in with gravitational pull. Both are unlike anything else on the radio at this time. And anything really I'd ever heard. And furthermore, this is a big thing, while sonically very different, both songs are about misfits opting out of the game and into their own chosen reality. Hearing them a mere few days apart is where and when the 70s truly get rolling for me. Where did these songs come from? Who are these people? Hey everybody, welcome to the MyLifeInConcert.com podcast. I'm your host, Various Artists, and this is episode 29A, concert number 22A, although this episode is not about a concert at all, but instead is a prelude to another episode which is about one, namely the most exciting live show of my life, David Bowie with Rough Trade at CNE Stadium, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, 
Saturday, September 3rd, 1983. Now that concert is covered in the second part of these two-part podcasts. Uh, That'll be episode 29, and that one is called Let's Dance. However, this first part, episode 29A, is entitled Changes, Bowie, the 70s, and me. And it's based on a mylifeinconcert.com blog entry of that same name, also a precursor uh, to the show about Bowie at the CNE. And uh, it's based on this article, this piece I originally wrote back in 2013 on Open Salon. Now, in this episode, I look back on Bowie's career, starting with his very first single in 1964, Liza Jane, until 1983's Let's Dance, 20 years later. But I also reflect on the sweeping socio-cultural changes that went down during the 1970s, a decade that Bowie helped shape, and how all of this impacted me as I grew up during that incredible time. So if you're only interested in hearing about the show, no worries, skip ahead to the next episode. But if you're willing, Settle in for this prelude and take a ride with me through the 70s. Make sure you have your shag rugs, shag haircuts, platform shoes, and satin flares at the ready. Or maybe dig out that one remaining quaalude that you've been saving for all these years for a special occasion. Sit back, relax, and listen. Greetings, dear listeners, both new and returning, and thanks for tuning in. I just quickly want to remind you to check out the MyLifeInConcert.com website and blog chronicling this and many other shows between 1975 and now uh, with uh, my original blog entry that I wrote for these show, this and, and, the, and the next show in 2013, now on that site. And a lot of the entries feature uh, also lots of photos, videos, ephemera, the ticket, etc., etc., and related Spotify playlists. And on the topic of Spotify playlists, you can hear my Spotify playlist that I have in tandem for many of my episodes and others as well, uh, just other playlists as well, under my various artists' username. But it's just as easy to search for mylifeinconcert.com or M-L-I-C followed by a prompt, as all my playlists start that way. Or simply follow me on Spotify. Now, I have two playlists up on Spotify and uh, embedded in the website that I created for these episodes, a short one and a long one. The short one is MLIC Prompt, David Bowie, Time Span, C90, 1964 to 2016, a cassette length overview of Bowie's whole career, cherry picking the best of each LP or era uh, from 1964 through 2016. Uh, it's another in the in this series, this time span series I've been creating, where it spans a whole artist's career, but just sort of the quick and dirty, just 90 minutes, the length of a cassette. Uh, I, I and a lot of people from my generation used to make a lot of compilations on C90 cassettes. And it's kind of a, that, that and CDs, they both have really good time. For, uh, it's kind of like a good amount of time for a, a, a compilation. So anyway, but these are cassette length. And the long one is MLIC prompt David Bowie 
Goldmine, my favorite deep cuts, outtakes, and live tracks from 1964 to 1983. Five plus hours of Bowie rarities, obscurities, and lesser heard cuts from his first 20 years as a recording artist. Great for a long drive, walk, run, or while working on a project, or simply to throw on shuffle as you go about your day. And they're both on Spotify and, and uh, again, are embedded in uh, the blog entry for this show. Also, please like, follow, and subscribe on our Facebook and Instagram pages, as well as our YouTube channel, which features not only the podcast, but live footage from shows that Cublet or I have shot, along with vintage video clips. Uh, and also remember to hit that notification bell for new episodes. Okay, so... Back to the two songs that I was talking about in the intro. Of course, both of these songs will be instantly familiar to just about everyone of a certain age or those invested in music history knowledge as Space Oddity by David Bowie, as the one I heard two weeks prior, a week or two weeks prior, and the one I was hearing on that January 1973 morning was Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed. Now, Again, I can't emphasize this enough. This is such, this is probably a strange story for many to hear that I'm discovering life-changing artists from the radio because that's kind of the norm for a lot of young people, especially in that era. And with a lot of people, it's in their teens. They, especially their coming-of-age younger teens that's uh, that are music-obsessives, or even some just going through, that's when they hear a lot of music that really impacts them. But again, I'm a bit different as by all accounts, I came out of the womb, a fully formed tune head, as I mentioned in the intro. And I've discussed this in a number of episodes, uh, particularly the first one chronicling my first ever concert, Roxy music at the London arena in 1975. That's episode two. I grew up in a music mad household via decade older siblings who, as I was saying, had great taste. And as I was mentioning, the record, records that arrived and accumulated in our home tended toward Rock's slipstream of the day, with a particularly keen interest in what was coming out of the home country of everyone in my household, save yours truly, the UK. I've been told endless stories by parents, aunts, uncles, cousins, siblings, and family friends about how I was a magnet for records and music from the start with my folks recalling how I could correctly identify 45s when they would say, you know, here's a pile of singles. They'd say, bring us this single, and I would bring it, and they would be perplexed because I couldn't read at the time. But I would always get the right single. And I know how I did it. I remember this, is I would like memorize like the, the length, like the amount of vinyl used, the length of the title. Just, you know, even if they were on the same label, there's different things visually that would differentiate them. And I was so obsessed with music, I had memorized all that. You asked me to memorize an address or directions or the name of someone I met five minutes ago, and I am useless. And I, yet I still remember all this stuff. There you go. With the Radio More in the 60s, I unconsciously at some point, and then later very much consciously, absorbed the great radio of that time, of the 60s. But AM Pop Radio took a conservative, risk-averse turn at the, at the turn of the 70s. If I were to sit here and count off the number of artists who I discovered via commercial radio, 
who I had no prior knowledge of and whose careers I followed and took significant interest in over time rather than simply liking one or two particular hit tunes or maybe just one album. I, you know, I could count them on the fingers of two hands. I'm not even sure I would need the second hand, at least from, from this point. Again, we're talking about commercial AM radio in the early 70s. These two new songs, they shone like dark stars, slicing in amid their tepid neighbors and bathing me in their alluringly sinister incandescent light, making almost everything else on the radio seem tired. They threw a bit of magic into my young life, and this was before I'd even had a chance to see what either of them looked like or learn of Bowie's contemporaneous undertakings. I had yet to learn that Space Oddity was actually a reissue of a three-and-a-half-year-old British hit that was not at all representative of what he was currently up to. Indeed, there were many things I didn't yet know about these Lou Reed and David Bowie characters. I soon found out that the latter had released an album called The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars six months earlier, and that it had been a sensation in the UK, with Bowie's life merging into that of its central character, a pansexual rock star from outer space arriving here on Earth. Many young Britons had their own Bowie epiphany on July 6, 1972, via his historic career-making performance on Top of the Pops, with David as Ziggy, then shockingly camping it up with guitarist Mick Ronson, and of course with the Spiders from Mars behind him, performing, uh, performing the album's soon-to-be UK hit, Starman. As narrator Jar Jarvis Cocker from Pulp notes at the beginning of uh, the BBC special, uh, David Bowie and the story of Ziggy Stardust, quote, in millions of living rooms across the British Isles, a strange alien creature was beamed onto our television screens. With bright red hair and a multicolored spacesuit, his unearthly appearance shocked the nation. But for many teenagers who experienced this televisual visitation, it would change their lives forever. And interesting enough, there was this amazing uh, installation show that, that went on tours of galleries um, about a decade or so ago, David Bowie is. And uh, we saw it in Toronto. And they actually had that spacesuit that he wore on top of the Pops. And it's wild when you see it up close because it actually looks like a bit of an oversized oven mitt. Now, as for this Lou Reed fellow, I didn't know that he had been in a band called the Velvet Underground, which was one of Bowie's biggest influences. And that Bowie, uh, at this time, and had done so in the past, was regularly playing the Velvet Underground's White Light, White Heat, and I'm Waiting for the Man as part of his set. Nor did I know that Bowie had co-produced Walk on the Wild Side and its parent album, along with uh, his guitarist, Mick Ronson. And actually, um, it was in tandem, uh, in tandem with Ronson, and from what I have read, many accounts attribute the predominance of production duties to Ronson rather than Bowie. Oh, he was certainly, Bowie was certainly involved through it, and he's on the record himself. As for Lou, I'm going to drop Lou now. He's coming up several times down the road in this series. And also, if you're a Velvets fan, check out my alternative versions of the Velvet Underground and Eco album uh, that I posted up on the MyLifeInConcert.com website uh, for the LP's 55th anniversary.
Back to David. The more I found out, the more I dove in. It all made innate sense to me and was enormously appealing. And this innate sense really wasn't reflected in a lot of other things in my current life and the immediate culture around me. Those things didn't necessarily connect or made sense. This did. These artists and their music were modern, transgressive, confrontational, and unusual. Not only there to shock the staid pre-rock generation, but also what much of the hippie culture had transitioned to by that time. A surfeit of mellow passivity that laid the seeds for the eventual morph into 80s yuppiedom. All the great things about the hippie culture. And when I was growing up, again, I, that is what was happening when I started having memories in the late 60s. And I really absorbed all that and I was very aware of it. So I'm sort of, of my younger years, sort of a hippie background with a punk mix. So I'm a little bit in both camps. Um, but all the great things about hippie culture that I love, the protests, the unshackling of repressive mores, the reordering of ideals and priorities, intrinsically interwoven with adventurous, experimental, and challenging music and fashion. Those were all the things I love. Well, that had plateaued and retreated within that originating community into a middle-of-the-road, pulse-bear-yet-organic-feeling sort of patchouli suburbanism as the children of the 60s began having actual kids and families of their own. So it was very much a feeling of, we have fun, but no one else is going to be allowed to. So in the wake of this shift came you know, an obsequiousness to various cultural signifiers that carried a reassuring whiff of a more radical time. See, for example, smiley faces being everywhere, longer hair as the norm, flared jeans as de rigueur, and most horrifyingly of all, macrame crafts. So to examine this in a semiotic sense, you know, and semiotics is the study of cultural signs, and a sign is made up of an acoustic image or an acoustic thing married to its representation, resulting in a sign. So when you look at these signifiers that were remaining predominant on the cultural radar, they've now been subsumed into the mainstream, twinned with the very different signifieds what they now represent had changed, resulting in some decidedly castrated cultural signs. Meanwhile, the 1960s counterculture protest mantle was usurped by others. While you know the hippie culture unquestionably provided liberation for some and new options, it was largely straight white males of a certain social class who truly cashed in on the benefits with these new, more permissive freedoms and options. In I'm With The Band, Confessions of a Groupie, one of the all-time classic rock music books, if you have not read it, you have to read it, by the always wonderful Pamela DeBar, who is Miss Pamela in the GTOs. In the book, she talks about the entrenched gender politics bubbling just below the peace, love, and liberation surface, writing about an early trip she made to a then-burgeoning Haight-Ashbury commune in the 1960s with her friend Linda, who, quote, moved into the first commune we entered and became house mother, which means she got to do all the cooking and cleaning. Very communal. 
The 1970s was truly the era when many of the disenfranchised who'd been left out of the more elite rebellion of the 1960s seized those options for themselves. As writer Pagan Kennedy notes in her incisive survey of the 70s platforms, one of the best books about 70s culture I've ever read. Uh, she says this, quote, While the 70s certainly produced its share of dopey top 40 hits, the decade was also a period of rapid, bewildering upheaval in social values. Many of the political ideas proposed in the 60s did not have repercussions for mainstream America until the early 70s. However, these changes tended to happen in homes and offices rather than in the streets. For instance, while feminism grew out of the 60s civil rights movement, it was, the 70s, it was in the 70s that women demanded equality in the workplace. The first Earth Day was held in 1970. Civil rights came to mean more than the enfranchisement of blacks as a kaleidoscope of ethnic groups demanded power. Gay liberation, inaugurated with the Stonewall Rebellion in 1969, grew to be such a powerful social force that the 70s are now synonymous with the gay-influenced disco, unquote. Now, as you may have noticed in that quote, amid noting the democratized expansion of the 1960s protest model in the 70s, Kennedy can't help but throw in the qualifying dig about the share of dopey top 40 hits. Uh, indeed, outside of most major North American cities, widely popular music seemed to be the one creative outlet that failed to keep pace with the groundbreaking societal changes of the time. In an era marked by the incendiary output of the critically acclaimed and commercially popular quote-unquote new Hollywood films of Scorsese, Coppola, Altman, etc., and also social realism or socially aware sitcoms such as All in the Family, Good Times, or Maud, or mid-decade satirical fare such as Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and uh, Saturday Night Live and Canada's own SCTV, or the continued march forward of the traditionally ahead-of-the-curve mediums of literature and theater. They're ahead of the curve anyway. AM radio was largely the domain of flaccid, wholesome pop and earnest yet bland post-hippie warblers. Rock music was barely on the radar, certainly the types of rock music that I liked. Meanwhile, over on the FM dial, rock was now a truly financial lucrative commodity in Woodstock's fiscal afterglow, with FM radio functioning as a branding regulator for a cash-bloated and less spontaneous industry. The adventurousness of the 60s FM rock stations had been chastened, homogenized, and corporatized into something more easily digestible and unthreatening. Rock's edge and risk were gone, at least within the larger marketplace. It was a time where each in its own way both AM and FM radio were working diligently to defang rock music. And part of the defanging included the expunging of those pesky outsiders, weirdos and eccentrics of many stripes who didn't want to play nice with the tame ducks. And I am one of those outsiders that the rock and roll corporation sought to deep six in the MORization of rock culture. I was the quarry. Throughout my life, I've never seen myself as neatly fitting into a host of available, 
popular molds, aesthetic, sexual, philosophical, or lifestyle. If you've spent your life coloring within and towing the lines, then I'll likely be instinctively wary of you. It's not about smugness. It's about empathy and the types of understanding that can sometimes only come with being shut out of the big picture. I find it hard on some level to trust someone who doesn't have some kind of outsider experiences and perspectives to draw on and learn from. I have a well-earned distrust of unfettered, unquestioned enfranchisement. Even while I've worked in some pretty um, (laughs) enfranchised environments, my natural propensity is to bond with others coming from marginal capacities, experiences, or perspectives. As they say, birds of a feather flock together. And on that note, I'll mention that I will be talking about Rough Trade later. Rough Trade fans will get what I just said. Also, being outside of the big picture, it adds a bit of intrigue. As Neil Young uh, wrote in reference to his big hit, Heart of Gold, in the liner notes of his Decade compilation, regarding the well-intended but ultimately circumspect and uncomfortable warm mainstream embrace he got with his post-harvest commercial watershed, uh, he writes, quote, This song put me in the middle of the road. Traveling there soon became a bore, so I headed for the ditch. A rougher ride, but I saw more interesting people there. Now, Young himself paid homage to Glam and Bowie, via original copies of Tonight's the Night, having small amounts of glitter inserted inside the sleeve, a hello from one iconoclast to another. And of course, Neil is coming up multiple times down the road in this series. And I do have one up uh, blog post um, for an amazing 2012 concert with Neil Young and Crazy Horse with Patti Smith opening the show. You want to talk about an amazing double bill. But that's happened a lot with Neil. Neil has some of the best opening acts ever. Uh, Oasis is another uh, show that comes to mind. Um, so uh, back to the outsider thing. So even today, and I just recently turned 60, I feel more like 35. I keep forgetting Um, And I'm calling myself an older middle-aged man. That's what I'm dealing with because I just don't feel it. Um, So, you know, and I've had a professional career and have one I, you know, and I can rock a crisp Calvin Klein suit and love high-end footwear. That's my other side, the one that loves sleek elegance and aesthetically sharp design. But I'm always aware of my otherness. I feel quite comfortable in my own skin. Thank you very much. But that took time to grow into that you know, feeling of of self. And I I always remain aware of where and when I'm simply a tourist in another's land. At my core, I'll always be one of the outsiders, one of the freaks. And I say that with nothing but pride and honor. While I perhaps didn't understand all this about myself intellectually at the time, I did so intuitively. And glam rock, or glitter rock, as we called it at the time, was a significant cornerstone that allowed me to let out my inner freak more overtly and confidently. That's why all the cultural missives launched at glam, usually coming from the typical homophobic troglodyte cluelessness or the reactionary hidebound preciousness of the mainstream rock community at the time, 
it, all that made me love glam all the more as it truly advanced Hendrix's rallying cry from the previous generation of flying one's freak flag high. Well, Jimmy got to do so anyway, as did a select group of others, although it became apparent that quote-unquote freakishness uh, within the pervasive rock culture came with limitations and buckle-unders. Certain freaks were able to wave their flags high, while others were relegated to flying half-mast, if at all. One of Glam's big taboo breakers and liberating factions was that it was the first rock movement to defy normative assumptions of gender and sexuality that ironically went beyond mere clothes and hairstyles. And it was in a way that was disquieting to much of the rock audience at the time. If the Barbarian's 1965 garage rock classic, Are You a Boy or Are You a Girl? If it inherently quelled the anxiety around that question via heteronormative assurances that its audience would implicitly understand the likes of Bowie's John I'm only dancing, which essentially it's essentially a bisexual update of the kids are all right. The who's the kids are all right. Uh, along with walk on the wild side, this leveled the sexual identity playing field, eschewing socially comfy heterosexist assurances, even if it was more optics, than reality with some of the poor performers Bowie in as a as an example for the most part anyway so this long overdue opening up of this particular can of worms impacted not just the performers but its audience and the presumptions that went with it remembering the aftermath of Bowie's 1972 top of the pop appearance which I was just discussing Soft Cell's Mark Almond remembers being immediately taken the day after the Starman performance aired. As he has said, Bowie was queer, and if you liked him, then you must be queer too. Well, no small wonder then that a whole new rainbow coalition of the previously disempowered reciprocally embraced Bowie and Glam as the first rock movement to say a genuine welcome to swaths of the audience who may have liked the music but had never truly felt invited to the party. Uh, as for the whole, oh, it's all a put-on grousing, good grief. This is something that really irks me. Now, this was the era of earthy authenticity as the standard bearer for respect and legitimacy, a benchmark I've always been very weary of as a badge of honor. Sincerity can be a damn easy thing to fake. Ask any actor. Whether one wants to believe so or not, we are still talking about a performance. Artifice, illusion, and image have always been part of the rock package. Even anti-image is often an image. Let's face it. The stories are all true, right? The Beatles were always perfect sweethearts and gentlemen who treated everyone around them wonderfully. Creedence Clearwater Revival, they grew up in the Louisiana backwoods. Joe Strummer of The Clash, he triumphed over a deeply disadvantaged life. And the surly streetwise Rolling Stones all came from the school of hard knocks on the banks of the Mississippi Delta. Or wait a minute, was it the south side of Chicago? Ah, uh, oh, wait a minute. Maybe those things aren't true. So, okay, this isn't a swipe at any of these great artists, all of whom I love. 
is just to point out that rock music is as much about presentation and presumptions as any other type of performance. Rock culture has always been quite aware of the John Ford maxim. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. I'm no way, I'm in no way saying that many artists aren't truly emotionally invested in what they are doing. No way. But rather that it's naive to think that once an artist steps out into the public money-spinning venture and forum replete with managers, PR reps, record companies, etc., that image positioning within the marketplace and career strategizing, it's part of the picture. It goes with it regardless of genre. Glam through gleaming glitter on the fact that being a public musician and artist involves being packaged and delivered through a mass medium. Indeed, whole swaths of each of our own days as we go about our business are about image and role playing in the theater of daily lives. And the various guises and characters we selectively play and present to each particular quote unquote audience. All of this gets amplified once a spotlight of any kind gets turned on. Glam was simply the latest in a still ongoing series of visual reinventions that go hand in hand with the performing arts of all stripes. As Roxy Music's Phil Manzanera explained to Simon Reynolds uh, for The Observer in the early 2010s, um, talking about the new look they forged to accompany a new sound um, in the early 70s, quote unquote, a lot of musicians were getting strung out on heavy drugs in the early 70s, and they were out of it. So they weren't even bothering to wear caftans or other hippie stuff, which had been stylish in their own way. However, back to my 10-year-old self. All that I really understood at the time was that I found the music, messages, and controversial presentation captivating, responding on a gut level. And it was such fun. As a newly minted teen, I had a lot of catching up to do when it came to learning about these glittering new creatures who are now my new fave raves. But while Bowie may have been a new star in the music marketplace, this stardom was years in the making. Now, something I once read regarding his longtime friend, rival, and glam predecessor, Mark Bolin of T-Rex, applies to Bowie. And the, the thing that was said is this, he'd had enough false starts to make a realist out of Mary Poppins. Now, his first 45, Bowie's first 45, was Liza Jane, released under his birth name of Davy Jones. I think it was Davy Jones, not just David Jones, with his backing band, The King Bees. Um, and it's a fiery, if indistinct, brand of raw R&B that was all the rage in London at that time via the Rolling Stones, Yardbirds, the Pretty Things, etc. And um, as with a number, especially these early, early mid-60s records, I actually really like them. They're not his best stuff, but I like the energy and, um, I don't know, I like them. Um, now, he, again, he was David Bowie at the time. He didn't become, sorry, he was David Jones at the time. Uh, Davy Jones, David Jones, but he didn't become Bowie until 1965. So as not to be confused with that other Davy Jones, whose uh, career was rising in the UK, uh, and of course became an overnight sensation uh, with the Monkees in 1966. Bowie toiled away at an unsuccessful career, but learned plenty as he went along. His expansive interests and genre hopping, which would define his career, especially in the 70s, marked his career right from the beginning. He 
Now, he began in the early 60s playing um, R&B and early, kind of early style rock with the King Bees, and that's where he released his first single. Uh, then he took, and that's 1964, that single came out. Then he took a blues turn in 1965 with his band, The Manish Boys, and they have a terrific cover of Bobby Bland's I Pity the Fool, which lots of people have covered. And one of the best things about it, there is a blistering solo from the uh, that was um, on the record from the then highly regarded studio guitarist Jimmy Page. Indeed, this was also the same session where Page gave Bowie a riff he'd been working on, which Bowie went on to use in three different songs. Uh, first, he used it as the bridge in Chingaling, uh, which was a whimsical hippie sing-along that he recorded in 1968 with his acoustic folk trio Feathers. Uh, and it featured then his then-musical partner John Hutchinson, who worked with him in the late 60s and a bit in the early 70s, along with Hermione Farthingale, his then-girlfriend, who he also wrote Letter to Hermione and also An Occasional Dream For on uh, his second LP, the one that later became retitled as Space Oddity. So that uh, Chingaling song, it was, it was recorded in 68, but wasn't released until 1984. So the first public appearance of Page's Melody was in 1970 with the song Savior Machine from The Man Who Sold the World. And he eventually reused it a third time for 1997's Dead Man Walking from Earthling. Around this time, he appeared on Conan O'Brien and did an acoustic version of this with Reeves Gabrels. But one of the best things about it is during the interview, Bowie recounts uh, Jimmy Page giving him this riff and does impersonations of both of them at the time. It's actually quite funny to watch. So that's probably somewhere online. Check it out. Okay, so following the demise of the Manish Boys, he formed the Lower Third, releasing two sort of freak beat singles uh, in 1965 and 66, echoing the explosive sounds of The Who that Bowie was really into and would go see at the marquee at the time. They made a very big impact on him. Now, after that, he kind of turned in 1966 into more of a mid-60s swinging pop singer for a few singles, uh, including Can't Help Thinking About Me. That's one of my favorite of his early songs. And then by the end of the year, though, he was exploring Anthony Newley-style cabaret pop, and that sort of dominated his very first album from 1967, uh, the self-titled David Bowie. After that uh, came the aforementioned acoustic trio Feathers, which I was just talking about, uh, in 1968. And that, in turn, in 69, morphed more into the folk rock sound um, of that was present on his sophomore LP, which was again titled David Bowie, also later retitled Man of Music, uh, Man of Wisdom, or was it Man of Music, Man of Words, Man of Music, Man of Wisdom, Man of Music, Man of Words. Uh, but finally, it was in the early 70s, retitled Space Oddity, and that's the title most people know it under. So then, so we've got 69. Then in 1970, he put together a proto-glam, proto-spiders group, The Hype, recording the hard rock-oriented The Man Who Sold the World with that lineup. And it's sort of a proto-spiders, but with Tony Visconti on bass. So by 1971, Bowie'd had seven years of failure, with only 1966's almost hit, 
can't stand thinking about me and his 1969 UK smash Space Oddity as the only exceptions. Even the success of Space Oddity came with negatives as most in the UK saw Space Oddity as a novelty record regaling him to sort of one hit wonder status which actually took his career backwards once the sunshine moment of the hit had set. In fact, all but Angie Bowie had deserted him by early 1971. The first turnaround happened when Peter Noon, who had just left Herman's Hermits, launched his solo career with Bowie's composition, Oh You Pretty Things. Bowie played on the recording, and it was a UK Top 20 hit, giving Bowie his second hit song and renewed music industry interest in him. By late 71, armed with a new RCA Records contract and a cigar-chomping manager, Tony DeFries, he inched one step closer to his goal via Hunky Dory, his first masterpiece and one of my very favorite David Bowie albums. It was a minor hit and a big underground cult hit in the UK, giving him his first top 40 album there. Its fey, skewed melodic pop laid out many of his topical obsessions for the years to come, uh, such as new, sort of new youth cultures, Nietzschean philosophy and power, stardom, pansexuality, occultism, madness, many more. A lot of the key themes, they're really there on that record. And it also contained tributes to several inspirations on side two, Andy Warhol, Bob Dylan, the Velvet Underground, and his institutionalized half-brother, Terry, and also just to overall theatricality. It also contained a dry run for the sound and stance that would arrive fully blown on the following years, the rise of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, um, with the VU-inspired gay-themed rocker Queen Bitch. Um, and I always wondered, I'd always wondered what happened what happened with Hunky Dory? Because for me, this is the album where he went from really good to great. And it launches that whole astounding run of LPs that ran from 71 to 1980. And I finally got my answer to this when I bought Paul Trinka's amazing Bowie biography, Starman, a few years ago. If you're looking to read a great biography about him. Now, it stops before his comeback in 2013, but it's incredible. And I found out so much reading that book and it answered that question. Why Hunky Dory? What happened? And what happened is that prior to this, really he was a song craftsman. He would come up, on, come up with an idea about a song he wanted to write and he would work on it. But with Hunky Dory, for the first time in his life, songs just started coming to him, the melodies, um, out of nowhere. And that's why the album has such, that, such a natural, organic feel. There's one song on the album, I can't remember which one now, but he was out buying shoes. He was out shopping for shoes in London, and the melody came to him. And he immediately had to abandon buying shoes and then go through the whole process of taking the bus all the way home and humming this melody in his head over and over until he got home. He was concerned, what if I run into someone? Because if he didn't stop humming it, the melody would be lost. Made it home, sat down at the piano, hit play on the tape recorder, and there it is. Can't remember. It's one of the more, the, I 
pretty sure it's one of the piano-based songs on side one. But that's really what happened. Songs just started coming to him naturally now, rather than necessarily having to work on it. I should also throw in right now, he's recently released, or not he's, he's long gone, his people have recently released the Divine Symmetry box set, all about the road that leads to Hunky Dory, and he's been putting out these album-themed box sets, but this one's exceptional. The first one is just a whole pile of amazing demos and then it's followed up with some great live shows and he had abandoned live performing because he thought his career was going nowhere and no one cared and these were his first shows back and they're the first shows with the spiders and they're just amazing shows so this new box set is particularly excellent so unlike space oddity where he had the big hit in the uk but the album didn't do anything and his career really floundered after that. After that experience, this time when success came knocking and the fame he craved touched down on his doorstep via uh, later on with Ziggy Stardust and, and Starman in 1972, this time Bowie was ready and prepared to confidently dig in, solidify, and move forward. Now, part of his game plan was to be cultural curator as well as a unique performer in his own right as he adamantly brought his corner of the universe to the fore with him. Now, again, I also found out around this time, 73, he had written that other new song that I was into, All the Young Dudes, for one of his favorite recently disbanded London groups, Mont the Hoople. Uh, and, of course, uh, Ronson and Bowie also um, produced that same with Lou Reed's Transformer just what an amazing set of albums um, and the band had actually broken up but they reassembled for the project which belatedly shot them to fame and they finally got the fame they had missed out on the first time around now Bowie also oversaw production uh, post-production on one of the seminal rock albums of the era or of all time from one of his idols and influences. And of course, I'm talking about Iggy and the Stooges' gleefully nasty, euphoric, proto-punk masterpiece, Raw Power. Um, and it's, it's just a perfect, deliciously primitive, visceral album. It's, it's like one of my favorite rock albums ever. Meanwhile, also at this time, Lulu from the '60s had a number three, uh, now had a number three hit in Britain with her version of Bowie's "The Man Who Sold the World," um, with Bowie on backing vocals, um, and there was a few other things. So he was officially exploding all over the UK. Now, as for glam rock in general, the revelations and <laughs> strangeness just kept coming particularly for me with the New York Dolls, who I could scarcely believe existed. Then and now I think they're a perfect rock and roll band. And then also the other biggie for me, Roxy Music, who took the honor of being the first band I ever saw live. I, I mentioned that earlier, it's a podcast too. Uh, meanwhile, there was lots of pre-glitter acts from the time who tapped in to the aspects of the glam sounder style. And of course, I think of like Elton John, Alice Cooper, the Rolling Stones, etc., etc. Now, while my usually more dialed-in siblings may have initially missed the Bowie memo, they were right on board the SS Ziggy in a snap. Almost overnight, them and their pals, with them and their pals checked out and striped flared pants, uh, Pucci-esque styled textile designs and chokers were out. 
satin, velvet, glitter, and towering platform shoes were now in. And don't forget those shag haircuts, sometimes creatively colored. Uh, there's another book I've highlighted before. It's a great book about the Toronto punk scene and what led up to that. Um, it's Liz Worth's uh, Treat Me Like Dirt, an oral history of Toronto, uh, a oral history of punk in Toronto and beyond. It even um, dips down into the London scene here. Uh, pushing a lot of books in this episode, but hey, they're all great books and reading is good. So anyway, in the book, uh, Seenster uh, Margaret uh, Barn del Col. A barn del Col, uh, re- uh, recalls how during the city's glam era in Toronto, there was, quote, there was that hair salon on Young Street called House of Lords. On a Saturday, nowadays you can't even imagine it, but imagine a hair salon having a lineup outside of people wanting to get a shag haircut. I live 30 minutes outside of the city, and yes, I, yet I took a bus into town to go stand in line at house of lords to get a shag haircut and i remember hearing about that at the time and i knew about house of lords so meanwhile the wider mainstream rock audience they weren't exactly accepting particularly in the less urban areas of north america and the pushback created really for the first time a widely visible popular intro rock underground now some of it was down to a good old generation gap something that bowie had lyrically anticipated on hunky dory's changes it's that line look out you rock and rollers pretty soon now you're going to get older and also on oh you pretty things don't you know uh you're driving your mamas and papas insane and there's some great footage of him performing that and other songs on the old gray whistle test around this time early 72 while he was still recording Ziggy and just kind of getting into that headspace. I've watched those clips so many times. So while glam was a certified public outrage in the UK and chunks of Europe, it was more of a cultier thing here in in Canada and even more so uh, down to the south. And I've kind of talked about this before about how You'll have these acts that are really big in the UK and they're almost unknown in the US and in Canada, they're sort of in between. So a lot of albums, you'll have an act debut at number one in the UK, it'll be 71 in America and like 20 here in Canada. So again, especially back in the day where Britain had even more of an influence, um, these acts, they weren't the mainstream here, but they were more popular than they were down in the States. This, for me, gave Glitter Rock an accentuated us-versus-them, in-versus-out patina, which made it all the more alluring to the marginalized audience like myself who were reveling in its playful decadence. Now, Bowie in the 70s was essentially the biggest cult act on Earth. He was never truly part of the U.S. corporate, corporate FM rock machine. And, you know, just as certain coded language or, you know, sartorial choices that would extend from London Polare to Los Angeles Zoot Suiters from the 40s and beyond, um, coded language have helped members of minority tribes identify each other throughout time. And Glam's outland, outlandish, sometimes confrontational clothes let you know who was and wasn't down with what you were about. I distinctly remember being impressed with my elementary school's new art teacher who arrived in 1974. And on the first day of class, 
when I was in grade seven, he correctly identified me as having a quote unquote David Bowie haircut, sort of like the uh, uh, sort of an Aladdin saying knockoff minus the red dye, even if he did pronounce Bowie as Bowie. So anyway, he was a great teacher. The era's daring, garish, but fun fashions gave me validation to be more comfortable and more overtly let out my inner freak. And now here's the thing I've been wondering about. So Glitter Rock was life-changing for me, or was it? Did it change me, or did it simply help me discover my true self that was already there? Yeah, I've been thinking about this. How much, how much do aesthetic artistic epiphanies truly change us as opposed to existing as keys that unlock what was already deep within us, which we'd fully had, fully had yet to grasp. Um, it kind of brings to mind for me, if you've watched the Battles, Battles, Battlestar Galactica reimagined that series from about like 20 years ago, when the final five Cylons upon all hearing all along the watchtower are instinctively drawn together into a room where each confronts the shocking revelation about themselves. Beneath their lifelong illusions of being normal humans, they are in fact the very alien beings they'd spent a lifetime hating and fighting against. So again, do epiphanies and experiences change us or unlock us? If you know the answer, send it to me in an email. Anyway, so the Ziggy visual, visual concept uh, was an eye-opening shocker at the time. Uh, so was the actual music. In an age of rock sweet prog extravaganzas, and a lot, there was a lot of double and triple albums with increasingly lush, labored productions where bigger, grander, more technically complex were always better, the slashing immediacy of Ziggy's music and the relative brevity of the tunes threw me. I remember looking at the back of the album sleeve and noting that Side 2 featured six tracks in an era where a lot of rock albums tend to have four or five on a side and three of them were even under three minutes with uh, the side's longest suffragette city topping out at a whopping three minutes and 25 seconds and then there was another track hang on to yourself sort of a proto ramones number when i heard that i thought it was the fastest thing i had ever heard so go back and listen to that that's how it sounded um in the early 70s as for Bowie himself, around the time I was discovering Space Oddity and then the Ziggy album, he was putting the finishing touches on his much-anticipated follow-up, the harder-rocking Ziggy in America album, Aladdin Sane, supporting that iconic cover with the lightning bolt across his face. And inside the androgynous semi-nude uh, semi image, um, in the gatefold. I remember my dear departed grandmother, um, very much from English. She grew up in, you know, Victorian England and, uh, showing her that cover, uh, with a crotchless Bowie naked with a crotchless Bowie where his body turned silver. I think she had to reach for her smelling salts when, um, I saw that and I, I was bad, I guess. I remember also showing her a picture of now Jane County, who was then Wayne County, but used to be uh, in full drag when he performed, but, um, it, it was just, here was this, <laughs> looked like a woman on stage, largely naked, but wasn't anyway. I think the word we can use the word bewilderment here for, for my grandmother, uh, in terms of seeing these images. 
Um, so anyway, but but just as a global audience was tuning into Bowie, he famously killed his alter ego Ziggy. Uh, with a shocking on-stage announcement during the tour's closing date at the uh, London's Hammersmith Odeon on July 3rd, 1973. And there was a very young Kate Bush among the heartbroken teens in the very first rows of that show. So that was the first of many left turns he'd throw his audience. Uh, and after that, he disbanded the Spiders, decamped to Paris, and recorded pinups. Uh, a spirited quickie homage uh, to many of his favorite artists and songs of the 1960s before resettling in Los Angeles a few years later. And Pinups was not well received in Britain, but was well loved over here. And it was like a bit of a nugget style history lesson. I still really enjoy it. Um, Anyway, while the primal energy of Ziggy and Aladdin Sane shook off the stupor of coasting early 70s rock, infusing it with a much-needed jolt that was borrowed from earlier rock eras. And again, Pinups was a reminder of an adrenalized pre-psychedelic 60s rock. His truly radical forwardness had been more down to the, to the look, the themes, and the stances. Again, he essentially been tapping into a recently buried past to fuel um, his energetically revamped take on primal music. At the end of the day, it was still good old rock and roll, only with uh, Kensai Yamamoto designing the wares and a good haberdasher or two thrown in. Starting with 1974's Diamond Dogs, with its more assured nods towards both R&B on one hand and the avant-garde on the other, Bowie's music became as restless and exploratory as his subjects and presentation. The relentlessly curious experimenter from the 60s returned. Diamond Dogs planted the seeds for some of the music that would mark his output for the rest of the decade. The heavily theatrical first leg of the North American Diamond Dogs tour gave way to its second, the Philly Dogs Tour, sporting a new soul funk um, arrangements of the material and presaging where he was heading next. And he'd hinted at it with Panic in Detroit and even more overtly so with Diamond Dogs track 1984. Now, I totally remember this late 1974 appearance on the Dick Cavett Show. And I remember watching it in the basement of the home where my mother still lives. Uh, alongside my sister and dad, who sadly neither are with us anymore. And in it, Bowie premiered his new backing band sound and look via this incredible new song called Young Americans. When the eponymously titled album appeared in the late winter of 75, it divided his audience sharply and raging the rock and roll forever uh, set. Um, and again, when one looks at Bowie's earliest listening taste and the panorama of genres he'd explored since 1964 his r&b leap shouldn't have been a surprise at all as it had long been one of his biggest musical passions but most of his 70s following myself included knew little about his pre-ziggy touch, uh, touchstones and influences the young americans album strongly incorporated elements of the then emerging disco and if the old school rockers were irritated by glam then a full-scale hatred of disco and, of course, all the different marginalized people who fell in with that music, this hatred towards all these people 
uh, women, gays, people of color. It united the splintering rock camps, including some of the glam kids. The biggest irony being, being that disco itself was hugely liberating for all sorts of people, uh, all sorts of minorities, and that's the key thing. So this sometimes violent reaction against disco from the rock community, which I dopely fell into for a few years, it's one of the embarrassments of my life, uh, was largely, what it was, it was about hatred of otherness. People who weren't straight white people. And speaking as it did to outsiders in its own way. And perfectly illuminating rock's uncomfortably little discussed, sometimes fascistic and xenophobic impulses. So, you know, as I was saying, I really regret um, some dopey thinking and stuff from the time in the later 70s. And so, for me, Bowie's reinvention, again, I watch Soul Train every week. And I, so, his re, this reinvention wasn't a heresy for me. I loved it. Um, but then, even then, even when rock music was primarily, it was my primary food group, it wasn't my be all end all. I loved the Young Americans album and his new direction. I was especially thrilled when two of my favorite things from the first half of the decade, Bowie and R&B, dovetailed uh, and accumulating with his, his performance on Soul Train, which I walked every week, watched every week. And he performed um, Fame, uh, which was his big, big hit, and he co-wrote it with John Lennon. And his then brand new 45, Golden Years, one of the best singles he ever released or anyone has ever released. That song also has a fitting title because it kicked off what I think are Bowie's true golden years as an artist, 1976 to 1980. Now, I have a link up on the blog uh, entry for this of him on Soul Train in 1975. Check that out if you haven't seen it. Again, I really remember watching it, but oh boy, he's in really, really rough shape, and it's obvious. There's also a Russell Hardy interview from around this time, uh, a satellite interview, which is actually a little difficult to watch because he's just way, way out there. The one thing, though, when Fame was a hit, that song confused me. The lyrics confused me because like, he had this huge, thriving career and, you know, the lyrics about what you need, you have to borrow. And I just didn't get it because it's like, okay, he's swimming in cash. The, the concept that Bo, because this is around the time Bowie realized he'd been robbed blind by Tony DeFries and essentially he had no money. The idea that Bowie would essentially be broke at this time was inconceivable to me that that would happen to these famous rock stars. So anyway, there was Fame and then Golden Years, and its parent album was another, parent album Station to Station was another jaw-dropping leap forward. Now, again, it was written and recorded shortly after Bowie had finished his acting work for his acclaimed feature uh, film debut, Nicholas Rogues, The Man Who Fell to Earth, an amazing, amazing film, which I've seen many times. Definitely check that one out if you haven't seen it. Um, and it also it was recorded amid deep cocaine-fueled sleep deprivation paranoia. Um, the album borrowed the funk template of young Americans, but it darkened the mood considerably and the sense of dread. Also, a big rock edge was tossed back in the mix, interweaving the extended groove-based excursions with angular left-field guitar workouts and adding all manner of oral and lyrical cues pointing to where, where his music and, and aesthetic were journeying to. Um, and the title track, Station to Station, that is my 
favorite Bowie song of all time. Um, now the album bridged the gap between his mid-decade R&B, his mid-decade R&B excursions and his ascending interest in European music, European focused music, experimental music, especially electronic heavy music, particularly the, um, the German groups, Kraftwerk, Can, and Neu. So the accompanying 1976 tour found the gaunt Bowie enacting his new persona, um, the unsettling Thin White Duke. And the, the concert itself was visually stunning because uh, he had this minimalist approach that was in complete contrast to the opulent show of the Diamond Dog Tour. Um, each set was preceded by a, a screening of the 1929 uh, Salvador uh, Dali, Louis Bunuel surrealist film, Un Chien Andalou. And I remember seeing this on TV Ontario um, in somewhere in, around this time in the mid or early 70s. And like a lot of things, it freaked me out, but also fascinated me. That combo has followed me a lot through my life. Oh my God, this is so strange. Oh, it's unsettling. What is this? And the show itself was devoid of any color. It was nothing but pure white lighting and high contrast black and white clothing, taking its cues from German expressionism. This was merely a warm-up for what was to come. Now, if there had been derisive cries among the rock bass in his audience with the release of Young Americans, it paled in comparison to the polarizing opinions that greeted Bowie's low in January of 1977. With this album, he ditched most of the rock and the funk, um, and his low album marked the start of what has since become known as the Berlin Trilogy or Berlin Period. Actually, low wasn't recorded in Berlin. It was actually recorded, recorded in Paris at the uh, Chateau uh, d'Herville um, and consists of fragmentary avant-garde pop on side one and several, uh, several largely instrumental mood pieces on side two. Uh, and it was produced by Tony Visconti with Brian Eno providing a lot of input into the sound and production. So whereas Ziggy had anticipated aspects of punk rock, which was exploding at the time of Lowe's release, 1977, Lowe itself anticipated early 80s post-punk on one hand and some of the darker synth pop to come on the other. It's decidedly uncommercial and experimental, uh, experimental nature alienated many with the title rumored to be a reference to the reaction by RCA executives upon hearing it. Um, but really it's actually a visual pun, um, with the title, um, because it's got that shot from the man who sold the word from man who sold, ah, the man who fell to earth, getting a lot of these titles mixed up. And of course he's in profile on the cover and low is above it. So low profile, the visual pun for me, low is his all time masterworks. And one of my desert Island discs, I have a top 15 albums list up that I did as an open call when I was on open salon, everyone writing in and discussing their top 15. And I have a short list of follow-ups. It's about 60 albums, but it's on there as one of the 15. And I just find the music, the mood, and it's, just strangeness, endlessly captivating. 45 years on, ouch, it still sounds fresh and fascinating. 
It's one that I've never stopped playing, and in in terms of its larger impact, the seeds it planted have continued to sprout in the works of others year after year, and it's regularly name-dropped by a range of various artists as a key influence. Now, one of the biggest criticisms aimed at Lowe was that it was cold, a charge that I simply don't get. It's not exactly a knees-up, but instead it features some of his most moving emotional music. Because at this time he was trying to piece together his drug-fractured psyche and life, he was trying to put this all back together, and the absence of vocals on a lot of the tracks are down to him wanting to express himself through music that projected like how he was feeling, um, and that were probably ineffable for him at this time. The music did what the words weren't doing. So if some of the spiritual numbness he was undergoing came through on the album, it was twinned with this combo platter of accompanying pain, confusion, and just raw nerves. A somber tone is certainly evident on something like the hypnotic and mournful Warsaw, which starts side two. Um, But it's not the only mood and color that's part of the album. For instance, I can't think of anything I've heard that captures the anxiety, adventure, trepidation, and liberation of making a complete break in your life and starting over somewhere else better than the wordless two minutes and 53 seconds of a new career in a new town. I have this vivid memory of when I moved to Ottawa and I wanted to get out of London so badly at the time and, you know, having a new career and being on the bus and having my headphones on and this, I had this song on a cassette and it came on and it just captured everything I was feeling at that moment in the music, everything, the wistfulness of the harmonica, the sort of major notes that appear at the end, just everything. Same with uh, later on sense of doubt from heroes, which I'll be talking about. Uh, I have this distinct memory of September 12th, 2001 walking through downtown Ottawa to get to my work. No one was around the world was numbed and shattered and i had this kind of quiet music on because i didn't want to hear everything loud i didn't want to hear vocals and walking through deserted downtown ottawa and sense of doubt coming on that song completely encapsulated how the mood of everything around me felt at that time and the title's perfect sense of doubt that's what it was back to low you know these tracks that did have lyrics on low use them sparingly cryptically um the the sing the album single that's the one tune most people do know from the album sound and vision that's a great example of that now other aspects of low turned out to be more obvious <laughs> and less complicated than they had initially seemed for instance there's the song breaking glass and i used to see the lyrics to that song as sort of a lyrically abstract depiction of a fragmenting psyche. But going back to Paul Trinka's book, Starman, uh, apparently actually what it is, the lyrics, it's pretty much a near literal account of a huge fight that went down in the studio during an unwelcome visit from Angie Bowie. Um, So not only does Station to Station and Low, that double whammy of back-to-back albums, constitute one of my all-time one two albums it should be one two three because heroes is next and god i love heroes 
Um, the latter album, Low, was also recorded in tandem with another seminal album that I will listen to as long as I'm alive. The Bowie produced and co-written post-Stooges Iggy Pop debut solo album, The Idiot. I could talk about that one for two hours. Anyway, after springing uh, Iggy from an LA, from a, an asylum in LA, um, they went to, uh, Bo, uh, David Bowie went out on tour with Iggy Pop uh, no, Iggy Pop first went out with David Bowie on the Station to Station tour, just as a traveling friend. And then Bowie got behind the tour for Iggy Pop for the idiot playing keyboards off to the um, off to the side. And they both moved to Berlin to get off of drugs. Seriously, who goes to Berlin to get off of drugs? Anyway, Bowie ended up playing piano in a low-key capacity on the Iggy tour, as I was saying. And one of the coolest things later on in the year... Um, with when the Lust for Life album came out, Bowie and Iggy Pop, with Iggy as the performer, appeared on the Dinah Shore show. Mortifying North American housewives everywhere. And I have a link to this on my blog page. Someone has posted it on YouTube. Definitely watch it. You can see the other guest of the day was Rosemary Clooney. And, you know, they're talking to Iggy, who's being very, very nice. And and they're actually having a rather nice conversation. As a matter of fact, you can see that Clooney and Shore are they're part horrified, part fascinated. And it's like they want to take Iggy home and give him a bowl of soup. And Bowie's just looking on, sort of chuckling and chiming in. Oh, I love the 70s. Um, so shortly after that, Iggy Pop tour wrapped. And again, Lust for Life came out. Bowie released the second album in, in his Berlin trilogy, Heroes, which I'd already mentioned. And again, Eno played a key role. Robert Fripp is on this one. And it basically followed the same template as Lowe with sort of skewed rock on one side and then mood pieces on the other, but probably even darker than its predecessor. Now, Bowie himself returned to touring the following year, um, a jaunt that's documented in his stage album, which is, I love that album, even more so the expanded version and reordered, properly ordered version. But that's a big favorite. I've never been keen on the Ziggy live material on that album, but everything else is amazing. And then he completed the trio with Lodger in 1979. But this time, uh, the album's a little more conventional and the split was really, the first side is more about Eastern world concerns and the second side is more about Western world concerns. Also, I'll throw in, getting back to the stage tour, there's a Rock Palast episode, that amazing German show from early on in the stage tour. It's him with the band, and it's about a 50-minute, 45-50-minute performance. I have watched that seven eight, or eight times. I think the Spiders were his best, just balls-out rock band, but the band he had on that 78 tour, that's my favorite band he ever had overall. So... The 70s ending, a decade he helped define, and Bowie greeted the 1980s with another one of his finest albums, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. A brilliantly executed, accessible synthesis of pretty much everything he'd done in the 70s, well, since 1969. And it yielded major international hits in Ashes to Ashes and Fashion, and both came accompanied by very innovative videos. Uh, with the former cannily incorporating figures and visual elements from the then-emerging Blitz, Blitz or synth-pop scene in London. And, of course, Steve Strange is in it. And so he did 
all this work. He was just working constantly in the 70s. He released Scary Monsters. He was doing Elephant Man on Broadway. And then nothing. After a decade of nonstop work and music issuing, the lights were temporarily, temporarily dimmed at Shea Bowie for well over two years. And this is at a time when like Heroes and Loke, came out one year, two album, two brilliant albums in one year. It was totally normal for everyone to put out an album a year, maybe two, to take two and a half years away from the spotlight at the time would be like taking seven or eight years now. And again, going back to the Trinka book, I had two big questions I'd always wanted answered. One was why things locked into place with Hunky Dory, and also what happened after Scary Monsters. And the book explains it. It was the death of John Lennon. Um, I had not known until I read that book. I, of course, knew they worked together on fame, but I thought it was one of those things they worked together and then moved on. They actually remained really good friends for the rest of the 70s. And Lennon's shooting absolutely, utterly undid him, and he changed his entire life. Now, he he did do some work in the next few years. He was... um, in Bertolt Brecht's Ball, a TV production of Ball, and he released an EP of traditional versions of those songs. That was his last recording for RCA. I wrote at the t- I wrote for the initial blog entry from 2010 a surprisingly weak formulaic song for the Cat People movie. You know what? And not on par with his stuff before, but I actually like that a lot more now. And of course, he guested on Queen's uh, Under Pressure hit. But otherwise, Bowie retreated in a way he never dreamed of doing since Ziggy Stardust made him a bona fide star. Now, in his absence, Bowie's fan base had to look back on and assess his creative vapor trail. Uh, again, in England, there was a KTAL Best Of, and it was a huge hit I think in 1981. It may have hit number one. And uh, meanwhile, while wide swaths of the music pouring out from the British Isles at that time owed some form of debt to him. And also for myself, this was a period when I began to slowly reinvestigate music from the past overall. I mean, I already was invested in that, but I've been very much, and also still now new, what's new, what's happening. And going back and really examining his output retrospectively just deepened my obsessiveness during this time, as it did with a number of music mad pals that I knew. We were, you know, we wanted something. It really deepened my fanaticism, if anything. So owing to his ongoing influence, he was everywhere yet nowhere. And absence makes the heart grow fonder, as they say. So it was with jubilant surprise and delight that I opened the Christmas 1982 edition of the NME and was greeted with the announcement that Bowie would be coming out with a new album in 1983 and undertaking a major international tour. I'm going to read you the clip from the NME from the uh, Christmas Day issue of the New Musical Express, 1982. Bowie tour definitely on. David Bowie has now confirmed officially that he will begin a world tour in March and will be on the concert trail through until November, as Enemy accurately forecast two weeks ago. The tour, his first for more than five years, will take him to Europe, Britain, North America, and the Far East 
probably in that order. His full global schedule is being lined up by International Talent Group of New York, working in conjunction with the TBA agency in this country. Bowie's officially spokesman said that this week, the precise dates and venues will be announced in the new year. Meanwhile, Bowie himself is at present in Europe working on a new album, which will be released worldwide shortly before the opening of the tour. Well, he ended up recording the album in New York, and of course the tour started a bit later than initially forecast, but there it was. It was on. Well, this concludes the first episode looking back on David Bowie's career, the 1970s, and how I experienced them. Up next is the actual concert itself, the most exciting show I ever attended. Jump over to episode 29B and join me as I, along with Miss B and 60,000 others, experience a brilliant live set at c &E Stadium by Bowie, along with opening act Rough Trade, as I close out one of the most memorable summers of my life with a concert for the ages on a scorching Labor Day weekend. Stay tuned for being caught up in rushing crowds, a nod to Hamlet, and bamboo steamers among the Bowie masses. In episode 29B, concert number 22, Let's Dance. David Bowie with Rough Trade, CNE Stadium, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Saturday, September 3rd, 1983. I'd like to remind folks once again to please remember to like, follow, subscribe, and hit the notification bell where applicable on our Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram pages. And please leave your memories of any of the gigs I'm writing about or podcasting about on the platform of your choice. Additionally, once again, there are the two Spotify playlists for this episode, MLIC Prompt, David Bowie, Time Span, C90, 1964 to 2016, a cassette-length overview of Bowie's whole career from 60, 1964 to his, his passing in 2016, and MLIC, David Bowie, MLIC Prompt, David Bowie, Goldmine, my favorite deep cuts, outtakes, and live tracks from 1964 through 83. And finally, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to tell your Toonhead friends about the sprightly and satisfying experience that is mylifeinconcert.com. Tell your stoner Aunt Susan Tell your rambling Uncle Ron with that rare original stereo pressing of the Beatles' Please Please Me LP. Tell the live music junkies in your life. Tell the lady who puts the little plastic robins on the Christmas cakes. Just tell them about mylifeinconcert.com. I'd like to say a big thanks once again to listeners both new and returning for taking the time to tune in. This is your host, Various Artists, signing off, and we'll meet up at the next concert. See you then, and see you there. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>